Welcome to Spotlights, a series of online events and publications focusing on a particular group of victim survivors who are often hidden from services. As part of Safe Life Spotlight on honour-based violence and forced marriage, this week my colleague Deirdre went to meet Ariana, who works for a black and minority ethnic women's organisation called Sahelia, based in Scotland. Following our previous podcasts, this week we hear about how mental health issues and honour-based violence and forced marriage are connected with a particular focus on young people. We hope you find the interview as interesting and informative as we have. by telling me a bit about yourself and the work that you do and, and who you work for and what they do. Okay. Um, my name's Ariana and I work with uh, Sahelia, which is a black minority ethnic women's organisation. Um, we predominantly work... Well, we started working with the issues connected to mental health because there was a gap in provision in Scotland or especially in Edinburgh... Um, it's quite a long history, so I'll be brief. Um, but we've been around for 25 years. This is our 25th year this year. Um, and what we found was that, um, mainstream services weren't offering, um, I guess, tailored provision or had an understanding and awareness of mental health especially black minority ethnic women. And there was a number of issues for that because there was language barriers, mm-hmm. but there was also, an, I guess, just not an awareness of culture or how women from black minority ethnic backgrounds might be expressing their experiences of mental health. Yeah. So um, there's a lot of literature that talks about how um, women from... I'm going to use the term BME from yeah. here on. Um Women from BME backgrounds tend to uh, describe their physical symptoms over their uh, symptoms that might be connected with their mental health. So women would be going in to see doctors and be talking about um, how they were having headaches or stomach pains or physical pains or they couldn't sleep um, and were usually getting diagnosed with the because they were describing the physical symptoms, um, I guess they were being diagnosed with physical ailments, whereas actually um, a lot of the stuff was connected with their mental health. Mm. Um, so which is where Sahelia came into being. And over the years, we've kind of grown from that because, you know, when you recognise that there's issues of mental health, you then start to check, I guess, look at what why that mental health, those issues of mental health are, are happening for so many women from so many different backgrounds in in Edinburgh. I mean, what was going on here? And I think what started coming out was a lot of the women were experiencing other issues. Mm-hmm. Um, some some stuff was connected to, I guess, um, again, language barriers, racism. You know, not a feeling, I guess, kind of segregated from mainstream society. Mm-hmm. Um, and additionally, issues within their own communities. So, um, I guess, physical violence, mental um, abuse, you know, uh, emotional abuse. 
And from that, we set up, an, um, I guess, a learning centre. Yeah. Um, the learning centre um, offers, like, so a lot of the women, like I was saying, language barrier is a huge issue. And there's women within the communities who just hadn't learnt, to, I guess, hadn't isn't a fair way of describing it. I said, I guess, probably weren't allowed to learn the language. Yeah. Um, coming in to learn the language and then recognizing that they could do other things, you know, take other courses. Yeah. Do, um, and we also offered a, a crash service, which is a major thing because. These women are carers of their children. Um, I work with uh, Young Sahelia, which is uh, a service for young women, uh, young women and girls aged between 12 and 25, um, which is quite broad, but um, it seems to work for us. How do they get referred into the service in the first place? What what issues are they having that leads to it? What we find is... So we get young women referred from uh, schools. Yep. We get young women referring themselves. Mm-hmm. We get young women referring their friends. Yeah. We get young people referred by social work. Mm-hmm. Uh, help. Um, sometimes families refer their girls to us. Yes. Um, and then we get internal referrals as well from services within Sahelia. So from the counselling service or from, you know, the learning centre, etc. Some yeah. of the girls will come in with a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Other girls and other young women sometimes will be referred by school and the school will say, this girl is not coming to school and we don't know what to do about it. Okay. And usually what will happen is we'll work with those young people to kind of, you know, and even though they've been referred for not coming to school or not doing, I guess, as well at school, which is sometimes how described. Yeah. Um, you know, we'll, we'll do our own assessment, and our assessment is quite rigorous, so yeah. we'll, we'll ask questions that nobody's ever asked them before. So it's just kind of working with them to kind of identify what is actually going on, and that's quite a long process. You know, assessment's an ongoing process, and, yeah. you know. Yeah, at the beginning when you're talking about what your organization does it sounds like you kind of started from a place of helping women to identify their mental health um issues and and needs and then finding that a lot of their mental health problems were linked to issues in other areas of their lives it sounds like you kind of developed to meet those needs as as you found out more about them so for the young people that you come into contact with how much of it is about their culture and not having language around mental health or just maybe not having the language around it because you're young? I think it's a combination of things. Yeah. I think it's... Because um, this, this is the issue that um, we we find and the young women find with mainstream services because when they, when they do get referred to, say, a children adolescent mental health service, they might not necessarily have the language to express what they're feeling. Yeah. Um, because within these communities, and I think it's important to talk about that, is it, this is not, you know, not across the board, but yeah. what we find is sometimes the young women, if they talk about having mental health issues, mm-hmm. sometimes the parents can, because they don't have the language and they might think it's something else. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've worked with young women whose parents think that they've had some kind of magic done on them, and that's why they're not well. Yeah. So, like, black magic. Um, 
So that, I think, can lead to the young people being quite hesitant, I guess, in even describing their symptoms, because there's immediately a connection to it being something really negative and that is viewed as something that is wrong with them, yeah. you know? And again, you know, this. I think it's important for me to emphasise that that's, you know, I know that in um, Western societies that has changed quite a bit, but I think working with young people, I don't think it's changed as much. What we seem to find is young women come in and they they don't have the language to describe what's going on. They only know that um, that they're not okay. And we don't take, um, you know, whereas, you know, like, like I said, we take a we take a holistic approach. But on top of that, you know, the young person is central for us, you know, and what they're saying is the most important thing. Yeah. Because um, we want to ensure that they're heard, you know, and any support we offer is coming from what they're saying and not us imposing some kind of, you know, um, support on them. That so, must be a hard balance but, if you're trying to help them develop the language around what they're experiencing without imposing on them and saying, this is what yeah. this is what you have. Yeah, and that's, you know, often that's what they're getting from mainstream services. So, well, a common example, a really common example for us is this young person doesn't go to sleep at night because she stays up and plays on a tablet or a phone all night, you know? Mm-hmm. And, okay, that's fine. She might do that, but why is she doing that? Yeah, because then I think I mentioned before that we work with young women who don't have anything else in their lives. Like, as in, they're living within a family home where they're the girls, mm-hmm. where they're not as valued as other members of the family unit. Um, they're expected to cook and clean and take care of that house. Mm-hmm. They're expected to take care of other people within that home. They might not have their own space, yeah. you know, their own physical space, yeah. you know. Yeah. And sometimes what we find is like mainstream services, you know, such as like children mental mental health adolescent services, they'll recommend that you know you need to start taking these um, pieces of technology away from these young people, you know, because that's what's causing it. And that's the issue that we have where these mainstream services will not look at the context, you know, and yeah. how to develop, have an awareness of the, I guess, what's going on culturally within yeah. that child's life. Definitely. And I think, yeah. and I, what we find is that definitely, like, these mainstream services will do a checkbox exercise, but they won't actually explore what that means, you know, yeah. and w- what that means for that young person. We have a young person's counsellor, and mm-hmm. she's, you know, that's her... Um, her, her whole approach is embedded in acknowledging the culture of these young women. And and, and I guess, you know, um, I guess the t- term we can't avoid is the honour, the, the fact that these young women have to carry the honour of that family, yeah. you know? And when they are um, experiencing mental health issues, you know, they can see, they can be viewed as being tarnished. And kind of, kind of reducing that honor in a sense. Am I going off on a tangent? <laughs> no, no, no. I think it's I think it's extremely relevant because, I mean, it sounds like a almost like a cycle because this person is 
is experiencing some sort of mental health issue. It, it can't be identified. It can't be named, you know, and then there's the whole shame of actually having a mental health um, issue and what that means for their honor. And if a practitioner who doesn't know about that doesn't understand that, then they really can't help them address it, I'm guessing. And I think it's terminology as well, because I think it's really interesting. You, pick, you picked up on the fact that it's language and knowing the right language. Yeah. So, for example, if someone will say, you know, I've been, I've been with the young, I've been with young people to police stations, to social work offices, where they'll attempt to discuss the issue of honour or forced marriage with the young women, mm-hmm. and they'll use it like, does your family do, do, talk to you about you dishonouring the family, and um, you, you have to do a forced going to a forced marriage? These words don't mean anything to them no. because that's not the words their families are using to them. You know, the the control that the family has over them and the way that control is maintained is, you know, is coercive in its nature. And yeah. it's not done through someone shouting, you are dishonouring the family. They don't yeah. use words like that. A common way of keeping control of the young people is family members will threaten to kill themselves. You know, yeah. mums will threaten to kill themselves. Yeah. And But if you don't ask the young people that, they're not going to know that that's something that is impacting them. And, and you know, and I just think of young people anyway, you know, aside from that and when they're trying to develop their identity and yeah. struggles that come with that in itself, and especially with the pressures that exist these days from being on social media, being in this world, you know, where there are already major expectations on you by the time you're 12 or 13 as a girl. Yeah. They'll come home they'll start speaking to their family or they'll try dressing in a certain way and their families are like, you're looking too Western. You know, that's not okay. You can't look like that. And this will escalate. And the mum will say, I'm just going to kill myself because you're ruining our lives. You know? Yeah. And that, that's like, you know, so coercive in its nature. I think, yeah, I think that's really important to talk about. Um, in the last podcast that I did with um, Dr. Sundari Anitha, she was talking about forced marriage and she was talking about the coercive context of it. And it's about when mainstream professionals make an assumption that somebody comes up to you in your family and say, we're going to take you off and you're going to be forced into this marriage. It's not like that oftentimes. Mm. So I'm guessing similarly for a young person, you're not going up to them and saying, you're dishonouring the family. This is this is honour-based violence. Um, yeah. And it's the other people within the family as well. So it wouldn't necessarily just be the parents. No. If there's brothers in the family, I'm not saying this is always the case. You know, like I've got, I work with young women who have amazing relationships with their siblings. But we also work with young women who have terrible relationships with their siblings. You know, where those siblings are... Um, involved in the abuse that goes in within the family yeah. home yeah. and will be a part of it. Well, they will uh, insult, you know, there'll be emotional abuse going on, but on top of it, uh, and additionally, there'll be, like, physical abuse going on. Yeah. So when someone's asking you, they're like, um, physical, do your parents hit you? <laughs> they might not hit you, but other members of the family do, and they don't stop it. Yeah. You know? Like, it's it's... You know what, one of them, I keep coming back to this idea of space because that's one of the major things that our young women tell us, like just not having the space to kind of exist. I think it's like a tribe trying to survive. 
you know, is the tribe yeah. trying to also be putting every effort to kind of maintain that tribe surviving. So, you know, one of the most dangerous things for a tribe is uh, an individual, mm-hmm. you know, because they're thinking independently. Yeah. Um, and this is, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not trying to put down the wonderful things that come from the communities, you know, and that some, a lot of it's amazing. But a community that's troubled try to survive will do a lot to ensure that happens. That's interesting because somebody's just written a blog for the podcast or for the spotlight. And one of the main things that they're saying is that um, young people in particular are kind of being subjected to heightened levels of sort of honor-based violence because of the threat of kind of their westernization and almost that the the violence and abuse that they're experiencing within their families and the communities sometimes is even greater than they would have experienced maybe in the country that their families come yeah. from because that threat is so real when they're yeah. here. Um, There's, you know, I've got, we work with young women who, when they go back to their various countries where their families come from, mm. will experience higher levels of freedom than they ever do when they're here. I think there's a fear of, like you're saying, the fear of becoming westernized. And, but I think it's also a fear that, you know, these families are trying to maintain, these communities are trying to maintain something, but they're doing it in a way that's so, sometimes so violent mm-hmm. and so abusive. Uh, you know, that I think it's, whatever the beauty of what they're trying to maintain sometimes gets lost. How many of the young people that you come into contact with who are referred to your service have had sort of these adverse childhood experiences and what do those sometimes look like? I'd say a lot. A lot of the young people we work with have experienced um, difficult childhoods. Yeah. Um, I guess, you know, within the family home, it's quite common for the young women to have experienced um, emotional abuse or physical abuse. Direct. Uh, yeah. Sexual abuse as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, but, and it's, you know, it's, it's so sad to say that it's so common, you know? Yeah. It, it, it's, um, especially the emotional or physical abuse, you know, it, it's, it's such a part, you know, that, I think our service wouldn't need to exist if it didn't happen, you know? Yeah. And it's one of our, you know, I feel like it's something I talk about so so often. I think it's not recognising the difficulties or the complexity of coming from a different background. And I yeah. sometimes think social workers will see the family unit and say, relatively, you know, both of the parents are in the house, there's stuff in the house, you know, there's... Um, you know, the house looks nice, you know, your parents seem loving. It's relatively, it's okay. But it can't be relative because sometimes what's going on within that household is incredible, you know? It's it's, it's so... um, Coercive? Yeah, (laughs) coercive, violent, you know, and and we, and I, I mean, we're as professionals we argue, you know, we'll argue the case for these young people. And that's us as professionals. So you can try to imagine how difficult it would be for a young person who's experienced that domestic violence at home 
and how would they pass that on to social work? You know, how would that social work be able to kind of, how would they argue them to get support from them? So you know, like social workers potentially, not all obviously, go in there with a very maybe stereotypical white British notion of what abusive neglect looks like. Yeah. And the thing is, you know, because I think sometimes when you're working within this world, you think it's such common knowledge, you know, like issues with divorce marriage or on a business, FGM as well, because, you know, we, some of our girls have experienced FGM and, you know, we, we find, I mean, that's, I would say, I don't want to, you know, like put stuff in a, a hierarchy, but a young person who's experienced FGM, you know, can you imagine the implications that would have on that young person for the rest of their lives? Yeah. And the, and the trauma that has caused them. This has come up in other conversations that I've had, and it's oftentimes on one side, kind of mainstream practitioners not having an understanding or awareness of, of uh, the culture and how that links to forms of abuse and violence, but also a fear of being culturally insensitive, um, offending people, um, and, yeah. and not seeing the difference between culture and just plain violence and abuse and um, an abuse of a, a, a girl's rights. Mm-hmm. And so and what kind of, maybe what's your advice to them, the, the ones going into those situations and having maybe consciously or subconsciously that fear? As mainstream service... Within, I think, you know, especially, say, social work or health, people look to you as examples of how to carry out this practice, you know, how to practice appropriately. So if you are putting out um, ideas that, you know, in order to do an assessment with the family, you need to work with the community elders. If you, if a child from a certain background is, if a young woman from a certain background should be allowed to experience certain things because that's what happens within a community. But then you are seen as the voice of authority. And I think that is something that sometimes is not um, acknowledged and recognised by the, by services because other organisations will follow suit, you know, and that's dangerous. That's such dangerous practice. And I think it's just, I think, I guess my advice would be is to offer a holistic assessment, offer a holistic service that you would to any child it doesn't matter what background that child is from you you know I think it's just as as a social worker you know you have to kind of you know you look at all elements a part a big part of you know in social work education a big part of it is how to do an appropriate assessment yeah in order to do that you you know you look the ecology you look at what goes on within that person's kind of systems within their lives yeah you know so whether you nobody's asking every single social worker or every single health provider or every single mental health worker to have an understanding or awareness of every single culture that is out there it's just saying to offer a holistic assessment so you are taking into account everything and i think you know, the feedback we get from young people is knowing that their experience is not just theirs, that is shared by other young people. And then being able to see how that is impacted, that is not something that just comes from them. 
as they've been told that it comes from something that's wrong with them, but it's something that happens due to the structures in society of what women face overall. So it's it's contextual. Yeah. And, yeah. And I think sometimes the young it's it's amazing how empowered the young people feel when they're able to kind of connect that, you know, because it isn't. It isn't that they're crazy. So your advice to professionals is to to treat this young person like you would anyone else in the yeah. extent of your assessment and what you find to be harmful and unharmful behaviour, but at the same time to be conscious and conscientious of the context of their life, whether it's their yeah. ethnicity or their culture or their gender or their sexual orientation how that affects their well-being and mental health needs to all be taken into account. Mm-hmm. And, Absolutely. Yeah. And it sounds like that's about awareness and training, mm-hmm. but also about not being fearful of naming what you're seeing and mm-hmm. and not offending culture or not offending any other situation that that mm-hmm. person is in. No. And I think it's, and I think it's just having common sense, isn't it? Yeah. Like, just being like aware that this thing is offensive and this thing is not, you know, just, just being, just having common sense. And, you know, at the end of the day, like, you know, I, you know, we work with such a wide, varied group of young women, like from so many different backgrounds. So, I mean, just being, being an ethnic minority is not just, it's not a homogenous thing. You know, you work with people from so many different backgrounds. What needs to happen through society as a whole, what needs to change so that we're not getting to this point where these women are having these experiences? I mean, I think, like, you know, the difficulty is is issues of honour-based violence are still not widely understood. Yeah. You know, it's still in its infancy that this is... Even that term, honour-based violence, is used and recognised by people. One of the ways that I understand honour is sometimes a lack of experience. Yeah. So the young women that we work with, you know, I've worked... <laughs> the way they've experienced honour-based violence is by not having experience. So not being allowed to do things. Yeah. So not allowed to go out with their friends, not being allowed to leave the house when they want. Imagine having to be able... How would you tell that to anyone else? How would you say to someone else, I can't do this because my family wouldn't let me do this? So it sounds like what you're saying to an extent is <laughs> that they have to somehow become aware of of their circumstances and if they are experiencing abuse, if they are experiencing coercion, how do they become aware of that and how do they have the chance to come out of that and challenge that? And if- I think it's, it's like you're saying, like, you know, things like, you know, issues such as forced marriage don't happen in a vacuum. They happen from a young person not having access to so many things from a young age, you know? The implications are there for a long time. If a young girl isn't allowed to speak to the boys, if a young girl is only allowed to, she can't go on school trips, she can't do this, what are those things saying to you? You know, I mean, I think the question is, is that abuse or is that a cultural practice? But... For me, that's a young person who's missing out on an experience. And in the context of what a young child must be, should be experiencing, she's not developing in the, in the way that is necessary for a young person. And inevitably, we'll have 
an impact on her mental health. And I think now with the recognition of coercive control, I feel like yeah. that opens the door for a lot more understanding of, of how abuse works and how it's far less obvious than you sometimes think. Did you, um, like, we talked about everything you wanted to talk about and had to say? Definitely. I mean, I, I think one of the things I do want to say is one of the fears I have working in the environment, I do, is... You know, I know this isn't all families and it's not all communities and it's not every young person has this experience. No. My work is, is we currently live in a world where the work I do, the work we do with these young women is sometimes um, monopolized by the right where they say this, you know, this is why Islam shouldn't exist. This is why, you know, because that this is what they do to their women. But yeah. this isn't the Muslim issue. This is an issue that goes beyond. You know, we I work with girls who experience honor-based violence who are from Sikh families, who are from Hindu families, who are from Christian families, you know, or have no religion. You know, yeah. it, it's beyond that. And I, and I just, I, need, I, I feel like I often have to say it because sometimes when I'm speaking about this, I don't want it to be a case where I'm, like, blaming a particular community. You know, it's not. Is, is not that issue. I mean, it's at the same time, though, I think it's really important that we do talk about it because, you know, the number of young people and, and women who have experienced, young women who will experience, yeah. you know, issues due to the, their experiences of one of this violence, you know. I think it's an easy narrative to have, isn't it? And it suits the narrative of certain people. You know, to be like, this is what religion does to these women and these girls. Yeah. But it isn't. And, you know, and I think, say, look at FGM. It's been widely, widely recognised that FGM is not a Muslim issue. So it's a similar thing with honor-based violence. And forced marriage is not connected to Islam. It's not connected to Sikhism. It's not connected to a particular religion. Right, Deidre? Thank you very much. Thank you as well. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to find out more about Safe Life Spotlight on honor based violence and forced marriage, please go to our website, safelives.org.uk, where we will be uploading new content every week, each exploring a different aspect of honor based violence and forced marriage. If you'd like to participate in the discussion, you can join in the live Twitter QA conversation on the 8th of June between 10 and 11 a.m. Just go to hashtag your choice. <laughs>